revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. On Naked Oceans this month, we're getting stuck into the issue of ocean aliens. Why is it sometimes such a big deal when marine species end up in the wrong places? So with boxes of oyster shells, you can imagine there are numerous hitchhikers that come along with them. Hello, I'm Helen Scales. Also this month, we hear about the problem of a beautiful but poisonous fish that's munching its way through Caribbean reef fish. Where they're from in the Pacific, they've been programmed over millions of years to eat as much as they can whenever they can. And in Critter of the Month, we catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine species, which one would they be and why? It actually makes its living upside down on the surface of the water, floating around on a raft of bubbles. Keep listening to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Well, we often hear about invasive freshwater species wreaking ecological havoc in places they shouldn't be. Things like Chinese mitten crabs and signal crayfish here in the UK and zebra mussels all around the world. And invasive species are also causing problems in the marine realm. Later on, we'll hear a story of lionfish causing problems in the Caribbean and how science could actually be contributing to species movement. But first, when we're talking about invasive species, how do we define what they actually are? An invasive species can go you know, by a number of different definitions. Um, a fairly broad definition would be any species that's living and persisting outside its native range. For it to be invasive, some people would impose on that definition um, another layer that it causes a problem, usually an economic problem. But at the most basic level, it's a species that's been moved and is able to uh, persist outside its native range. That was Bose Hancock from The Nature Conservancy. One of the key questions asked when it comes to invasives is about the scale of the problem. How many invasive species are there in the world and where are they localised? Back in 2008, Mark Spaulding, also from the Nature Conservancy, was involved in the first quantitative study of marine invasive species around the globe. What we wanted to do is try and tease apart the challenges of marine invasions. Now, some species are moving, there's always species moving into new environments. Um, some of those are far more threatening, far more problematic than others. So what we were trying to do was to look both at the geographic spread where these things were happening, were there hot spots of invasion, um, and also trying to tease out how many of those invasions are actually posing problems either for people or for nature uh, more widely. And we showed that they were found in pretty much every kind of biogeographic region of the world. They, they're, they're everywhere. And where we had gaps, chances are it's just that no one has data rather than they're not there. Uh, but there were huge hotspots, the Mediterranean being one, um, the California coast being another, um, southern Australia. A lot of those hotspots are around ports or areas of dense, technologically advanced human populations. And just how are these species moving around? You can have natural invasions. You can get species moving into a place naturally through some unusual weather event or, or so on. Um, but invasions generally are humans bringing 
uh, species into places. So we're introducing species all the time. I mean, the numbers are phenomenal. One estimate, which is probably reasonable, suggests that at any point in time at the moment, there's 10,000 different species being carried around in boats. A boat will pick up ballast water in one port and carry it to another um, and then it lets that water out with a host of species, most of which won't invade. They'll die. The, the conditions are wrong. It's too cold, too hot, too fresh, too salty. And so they won't survive. But every now and again, some will. As well as shipping, aquaculture or fish farming can also be a major way for species to move about the globe. There's a lot of movement of either the species that is being aquacultured itself, fish or shellfish, around the globe and also food. Some of the problems that have occurred have been with, um, say, fish pens and moving bait fish from one area to another to actually feed those farmed fish. Or alternatively, in the northwest of the US is a particularly high level of invasive species. And a good many of those actually came from the days when there were large volumes of small Pacific oysters shipped in from China predominantly um, and they were brought to the northwest and grown out there for sale. So with boxes of oyster shells, you can imagine there are numerous hitchhikers um, that come along with them and, and a good percentage of those have actually stayed and found a new home and have caused a number of problems as a result. Well, certainly aquaculture and shipping ballast water are two of the main routes of invasive transmission. But as we'll hear later, aquarium trade can also play a role. And a new study shows that scientific research could also be helping to move species around as well. But climate change may also have a role to play. I think in the changing world, with changing, with, particularly with climate change, there's going to be natural movements which are going to look like invasions. I mean, it's already happening. You know, we're, we're watching the the spread of species up coasts as coasts get warmer, the warmer water species are moving along and into new areas. So we're seeing that as a form of natural, semi-natural invasion. And it's not a nice, neat movement that every species shifts its range at the same time, at the same rate. So, yeah, you're going to get species appearing uh, that will then predate other species uh, that they've never met before. And so you will get imbalances and changes, and they will look like invasions in a kind of more uh, scary sense. They will be causing changes to ecosystems. Yet another example of humans providing a route for species to move to new areas is the building of the Suez Canal. Built in the 1860s, this forms a link between the eastern Mediterranean and the Red Sea, allowing goods to be transported from Europe to Asia without having to circumnavigate Africa. But it also acted as a passage between two bodies of water that had been separated for tens of millions of years, allowing species to migrate between them especially from the Red Sea to the Med, where around a 1,000 species have been recorded. So what is the ecological reason for the success of this invasion? Here's Mark Spaulding again. If you look at what's in an ocean, it's, you know, evolution works its magic and, and species appear. So on the eastern Mediterranean has always been a little bit depauperate. It's been lacking the number of species you'd expect in a body of water that warm in that location. And the reason for that, if you, if you look at it, is the, is the origins of those species. They've all had to come through colder water to get to the eastern Mediterranean. It's actually a kind of almost subtropical basin, the eastern Med. But the only route in for the last tens of millions of years has been through the, uh, 
you know, the Straits of Gibraltar, where the water's much colder. And what happened then, the Suez Canal was opened up and species have started to come in, a lot of fish, but a lot of other stuff too, um, and doing very well. Interestingly, they don't seem to have replaced or pushed out anything. So there you've got suddenly a much more diverse array of species, but nothing's actually thus far been documented as disappearing. So in this case, the invasions don't seem to have threatened the local ecosystem. But there are many more examples of species that have become a menace. Macroalgae have been smothering reefs in Hawaii, and comb jellies caused a crash in the anchovy fishery in the Black Sea in the 1980s after being introduced there. And it's not just animals and plants that can be invasive, but diseases as well that hitch a ride with transported species. But is it all doom and gloom? Can anything be done to remove invasives? Well, an eradication program to control algae taking over Hawaiian reefs has had some success because it's taking a whole ecosystem approach. Invasives are generally not just a threat on their own, but when taken together with other threats like pollution, nutrient runoff and overfishing of species that might eat the invasive, they present a problem. In Hawaii, measures are being taken to improve the health of the ecosystem to help fight against the algae, increasing the numbers of local herbivorous sea urchins, working with local government to reduce nutrient runoff, and the physical removal of algae using what are essentially giant ocean vacuum cleaners. The idea of introducing additional species to control an invasive problem is one that's been tried out on land, but often with disastrous consequences. Could we see this kind of intervention in the sea? Both Hancock. We are newer at the kind of imprecise art of manipulating the marine environment. It's been done on land for a long time, um, but we are still, you know, working to understand the, the ecosystems and the, the interactions in the ocean. Um, so I don't think we are anywhere near as, as advanced, and I would not, you know, advocate or encourage anybody to do that. I think the, the incidence of introductions going wrong outweigh the incidence of introductions doing what was intended by such an enormous amount that I think you'd be crazy to try it. So the key is really to prevent rather than treat. Equipment for testing ballast water and cleaning it is being developed, and it's really the increased awareness of the problem that is working in our favour, particularly when it comes to aquaculture. That doesn't mean accidental introductions are not still possible. Wherever animals are moved around in our oceans, there is the potential for transport of invasive species. But people are just far more aware of it now. And aquaculture operations actually rely on a clean environment. Um, that's what their business relies on. So the, the understanding of the impact of what has happened, I think, is one of the things we've got working in our favour at the moment. That was Bose Hancock, and we also heard from Mark Spaulding, both at the Nature Conservancy. And if you'd like to find out more about their work, you can find links to that on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with me, Helen Scales, and this month we're all about invasive species. Still to come, we'll hear about the notorious lionfish invasion in the Caribbean, but now a very relevant piece of science news. A study published this month in Conservation Biology found that deep-sea exploration vehicles like Alvin could be transporting species between different sites. Janet Voigt from the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago has been leading an expedition to see if deep-sea vent species would move to new habitats if they were available. And on one dive to the experimental habitat they created, they sampled 38 individuals of a species of deep-sea limpet. 
The team was thrilled until the morphology, isotope and genetic analysis came back, showing that the limpets were identical to those from a population found at a vent system over 600 kilometres away from their experimental site that the team had visited 36 hours earlier. After getting in touch with Amanda Bates, who had been working on this species of limpet, Janet realised that the limpets they'd sampled were not in the experimental site naturally. So we concluded, and I had just my my head in my hands at this point because my wonderful hypothesis was in the trash. I was ready to throw the whole thing in the garbage because it was contamination. And I emailed Amanda, just distraught, and she wrote back and said, Janet, this is just so much more important because what we have here is a demonstrated means by which Alvin could transport species that might be invasive to an area where they do not normally occur and that could be harboring diseases and parasites. As a deep-sea biologist, I had been to international vent biology workshops where people had cautioned us, oh, we really don't want to introduce any species to new areas. And I had sat there in the audience and nodded my head, thinking, oh, yeah, that'd be really, really awful. You shouldn't do that. And yet here I had led a cruise as chief scientist I was responsible that almost did that. So how had they got there? Somehow those animals, there were 38 of them, had managed to hide inside the suction sampler for at least 36 hours while the ship transited those 640, 50 kilometers north to our next dive site. I believed at one time that the exposure to the temperature shock, the exposure to the pressure differences from the seafloor to the surface would just, I mean, if it didn't kill them outright, the animals would just be moribund unless they got comfort. You know, they got cold water and really were taken care of. So our message to our colleagues who do deep sea research, whether it's biology, geology, and many of its different guises, is to please be careful and to clean things, to wash Alvin, the the samplers, gear where animals may be hiding underwater with fresh water to make sure that they can't infect a new site. A cautionary tale there from Janet Voigt, whose discovery that deep-sea research vehicles could provide a route for transport of species has led her to urge other researchers to clean their equipment thoroughly. Now, back up from the deep sea to an invasive species in coral reefs in the Caribbean. Lionfish are beautiful but venomous fish that are native to reefs in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. They're also popular aquarium pets, and it's thought that releases, either accidentally or perhaps on purpose, led to their introduction on the other side of the world. One of the first reports of lionfish in the Atlantic dates back to like the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a sort of an anecdotal observation. Somebody had seen one of these off the coast of Florida and nobody believed it. That's Chris Fluke from the Ocean Support Foundation in Bermuda. Then in 1992, there was a confirmed accidental release after Hurricane Andrew in the Biscayne Bay area of about five to six lionfish. People went there and took pictures and said, oh, that's beautiful. That's, you know, lionfish in the Atlantic. Oh, they're not really going to do much damage. Nobody knew and even predicted at all that they would do as much damage as they have. There are nine species of lionfish, and there are two that have become established in the Caribbean, Taroes volatans and Taroes miles. What's really interesting is everything north of Florida is both species, the volatans and miles. Everything south of Bahamas seems to be mostly volatans. 
which makes sort of the researchers believe that basically there were potentially two um, points of the of the invasion, one off Florida because of the two species, and then one south of Florida basically is just the volatans. To this point, I believe everyone south of Bahamas, uh, from Curacao down to um, Colombia, Mexico and all that, are all volatans. Linefish have also reached much further north to Bermuda, way out in the Sargasso Sea, a thousand kilometres off the United States' eastern seaboard. It was Chris Fluke who reported spotting one in the water in Bermuda ten years ago. Back then, he was head collector at the Bermuda Aquarium, and he noticed something was wrong at one of his top collecting spots. So the one year I went, and all of a sudden I was very aware that there were a lot less fish than usual, and it sort of raised some concerns to me. And as I turned the corner, sure enough, there was a lionfish. So I caught the lionfish, brought it in, and we started figuring like where this thing came from, because Bermuda's so far in the middle of nowhere, it's not that we imported the fish, it's obviously come from somewhere else. The major problem with lionfish getting established in the Caribbean is that they have really big appetites. And as soon as they set up home on a new reef, they very quickly start munching their way through the native fish species. Where they're from in the Pacific, they've been programmed over millions of years to eat as much as they can whenever they can, because the fish there see them as a threat. They've got to work really hard to eat because they might not eat tomorrow. The fish in the Atlantic don't see them as a threat. And we did some uh, early experiments when we first started seeing them here. And I took a little lionfish and put him in one tank. And I took a little black grouper from off the coast here in another tank. And I took some juvenile bait fish out of an enclosed bay that had never seen a grouper and put them in the tank with the grouper. And they knew that they had to stay away from that grouper because they knew at some point that grouper would eat them. And then we put the small fish into the tank with the lionfish, and they actually swam up to the lionfish to try and hide next to him, and he ate every single one. When you look head-on at a lionfish, it looks very similar to the soft corals that we have in the Atlantic, so the fish just haven't picked it up as a threat yet. They know groupers, they know sharks, they know bigger fish are threats, but just the way a lionfish looks looks more like something that they would want to hide in. Every single lionfish that I've necropsied, uh, from Bermuda, Florida, to the Caribbean, every single one has fatty liver disease. Now, fatty liver disease is a classic captive problem in the fact that you're overfeeding and the fish isn't working hard enough to get its food. So to see every single lionfish from the wild that we've cut open had fatty liver disease is very telling in the fact that they're just gorging. Studies are showing just how much of an impact lionfish can have on Caribbean reef fish. In the Bahamas, a five-week experiment showed that lionfish can reduce native juvenile fish by 79%. And one large lionfish was observed eating 20 young fish in just half an hour. And one of the keys to the successful invasion of the Atlantic by lionfish is their immense reproductive capacity. The females will dump about 30,000 eggs every spawning cycle. Now, those eggs, after about 30 to 40 days or so, actually settle out as baby fish on the reef. And by about six to seven months old, they're actually old enough to spawn. So what it is is the, the quick turnaround on the fish as far as their spawning cycles, have just made the population really boom. And it's those eggs that Chris thinks invaded Bermuda from further south in the Caribbean. The egg mass that the female dumps, it's not individual eggs or individual little larval fish. What it is, it's a big gooey gelatinous ball that floats around for a couple of days before these fish actually hatch out. So with that gooey ball floating to the surface and floating around for a few days before they actually hatch, you know, the ones that are spawning here close to shore, the potential is that they, the larval fish can make it to shore. 
but quite a few of them, I'm sure, are getting pushed out into the deep and going further north where it's colder and they actually don't make it to adulthood. But there's not much doubt in my mind that, you know, all the breeding fish that are down in the Caribbean, just because there are so many of them, for sure some of those egg masses are making it to us. And with lionfish in the Atlantic eating so much, they're growing bigger and producing even more fish than they do in the Pacific. In their native range, they get sort of about 13 inches or so, and we've had them as big as 18 in the Atlantic. Well, after researching these fish and learning more about their ability to munch their way through native fish populations, Chris and his colleagues convinced the Bermuda government to try and tackle the problem of lionfish in Bermudian waters. They came up with a plan to catch as many lionfish as possible, and the task force they enlisted is made up of local scuba divers. They're, they're fairly easy to catch. They really are bold and brave. They know that they have venom and nothing's going to eat them. There's two ways that we target them diving here. In most places I've been, they do the same thing. They basically have a some sort of small type spear um, that allows the diver to get up to the fish and whack him without getting too close. My personal favorite is using little um, collecting nets, little hand nets. With the fishermen, what I usually do is, because some guys have been actually catching them on hook and line and stuff as well, what I tell guys is that when you get it in the boat, just throw it on ice and leave it until it's dead. Once it's dead, then just cut the top fins off, cut the bottom fins off, and treat it like any other fish. They're also working on novel ways of selectively trapping lionfish while leaving other fish alone. One approach is to put some bait fish in a glass jar inside a trap to attract the predatory lionfish. And the other idea takes advantage of the fact that lionfish are social animals. We're also using high-resolution pictures of lionfish so that basically the lionfish will see them, think there's a group of them in there and want to go hang out. None of the other fish want to come and take a look at a picture of a lionfish, but lionfish do for some reason. So, I mean, we're still in the early stages of this and, and working out the kinks in it, but um, there is quite a bit of promise there so far with it. And the good news is that in areas where there's not too great a risk of ciguatera poisoning, that's a disease that people can catch by eating predatory fish in some tropical countries, then lionfish are really good to eat, even though they have those venomous spines. It's a true protein-based venom. It's not a toxin or a poison. And in heating, the venom will actually denature, so it's just inert. Um, so that's why if people are stung, we say the first thing to do is just put um, put your hand or wherever you've been stung in this warm water you can without burning yourself. But a cooking, if you took the whole fish as is, threw it in a frying pan, cooked it all the way through, there is absolutely nothing that you, on the fish you can't eat. So the campaign Chris launched was called Eat 'em to Beat 'em. I've always looked at the lionfish issue is we need to make lemonade from lemons. Um, we have this issue with lionfish in the Atlantic now. You know, humans have caused it. We're, there's no doubt there. Um, but you know the seafood watch cards where you've got a green choice, a yellow choice, and a red choice? The green choice is the best option, yellow choice we should avoid, and red choice we should definitely avoid. And those are all sort of managed fisheries. With lionfish, if we can start a commercial fishery for them, basically it's a greener than green choice because we're not removing healthy genetics from managed fishery because we want to remove all of them. By targeting them as a food fish, A, they're not out there eating B, they're not out there spawning. They're not competing against the other fish that are native supposed to be here. Um, but then also we're not pressuring the grouper and snapper species that aren't doing as well as we think they are. Um, so it's, there is some, some hope there um, if we can make a commercial fishery out of them. Lionfish eradication programs are being rolled out across their new range. So if you're a diver, watch out for lionfish catching derbies if you ever visit the Caribbean. And time will tell how well lionfish fisheries will take off to help control the invasion and minimise the impact on native species. But as Chris points out, lionfish are probably in the Caribbean for good. 
for me, it's never been a, an eradication issue. It's always been a management issue because to think that we're going to remove every single one of these lionfish is, is a complete pipe dream. Chris Fluke there from the Ocean Support Foundation, introducing us to the problem of invasive lionfish in Bermuda and beyond. And you can find out more about the lionfish invasion from links at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, time's just about up for Naked Oceans this month. But before we go, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. Here's our critter of the month. My name is Miriam Goldstein. I'm a graduate student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. For my research, I work in the middle of the North Pacific um, in the area called the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre. And I work on the surface of the ocean. And on the surface of the ocean lives what Sir Alistair Hardy called the Blue Fleet. There are all these animals that have made a living right at the very surface where the UV light is very strong. So they're all blue and purple. And they're really wonderful creatures. And of those, all those wonderful creatures, one of my favorites is the bubble snail, Janthina. And this is a little snail that um, has a, like, a lavender shell, and it actually makes its living upside down on the surface of the water, floating around on a raft of bubbles. So it just drifts along. It makes its own little raft, um, sort of just going with the wind and with these other animals that live in this fleet, um, feeding on the tentacles of jellyfish. So that's what, that's what it does. It just drifts along doing that. Um, and I always thought that sounded like a really nice life, just rafting along just a little bit under the ocean, um, nibbling and uh, having a good time for a snail. That was Miriam Goldstein from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, describing the carefree life of Janthina, the bubble snail. And you'll find lots more marine critters at our website. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Naked Oceans. Many thanks to Bose Hancock, Mark Spaulding, Janet Voigt, Chris Fluke and Miriam Goldstein. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you, so do keep in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Naked Oceans, or send us an email, the address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find loads more information on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening, and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.